0: So if you uh, have your Bibles there with you this morning, hopefully you do, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, just verses 1 and 2 this morning. You follow along in your copy of God's Word, and at the conclusion of this reading, I will open our service in prayer. <clears throat> 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. To Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for all your provisions to us, Lord, for enabling us to uh, be able to handle even uh, little hurdles that come our way, uh, just like we had this week with our baptismal. We're so thankful for your provision there, and uh, we do count it a joy to be able to see how you provide, even seeing how you provide through... Uh, the people in your church who uh, can take care of things. We look forward to our time together this morning, to these three baptisms. We're so thankful for uh, Richard and Shane and Diane as they want to follow our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in obedience and being baptized and just to tell everyone who is here today uh, that they are followers of Jesus Christ. And so we praise you for that. Uh, We're so thankful that we have the opportunity to gather together and then a little bit later to have fellowship around a meal. And Lord, we just count it a privilege to be able to do these things. Father, we also are thankful for your word we're thankful for the truth of it. We're thankful that in the questions and issues of life, we can find answers in the message that you have provided to us. So, Father, today as we look at your word, we would ask that it would not simply be information to us, but it would be effective in our own personal lives, in our own walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we ask uh, this morning. We know that you have provided your spirit to us to take your word and apply it to each of us individually. And so, Father, help us to uh, follow the Holy Spirit's guidance. Help us not to resist how the Holy Spirit would apply uh, your word this morning, and Lord, give us give us good attentions. Uh, help us to be able to set aside the distractions of the of the day to just focus on Your word for these few minutes that we have together. It is our desire that as we hear Your word, as we sing praises to you as we have these baptisms, as we have these fellowships, and even, Lord, later this afternoon as we celebrate the 50th anniversary of Conway and Anne. and all these things. We want you to be magnified. We want you to be glorified. Uh, We want all of these things to point people to your son, Jesus Christ, who will then point us to, to you. And so it is our desire and it's our prayer that you would be pleased with us this morning. And we pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So you should have in your bulletin a uh, set of notes for today. Should be a full page set of notes there. And I give you a lot of scripture in, in those notes that is not for us to look up this morning. Those are for you to have um, opportunity to look at on your own. But I wanted to give you some of that um, biblical information that I'm going to refer to. And then you can look some of those things up uh, as you do your own Bible study. Uh, so, this morning, we're beginning our study of Paul's uh, first letter to one of his proteges, a young man named Timothy. And in this letter, we're going to see that Timothy is going to be confronted with false teaching and false teachers in the church. And so, Paul's going to tell Timothy, How do you deal with this? How do you handle it? And he tells him how to handle it directly corporately and personally. And so if we're trying to boil down this letter, six chapters in all, to a theme, just if we try to get it down to one theme, it would be something like this. False doctrine leads to faulty practices. False doctrine leads to faulty practices or something along that line. The issue that Timothy is going to be dealing with is false doctrine and false teachers and how to correct it. And so we can uh, think of the theme in those terms. Uh, You might also be aware of the fact that Uh, This is one of the epistles that we call the pastoral epistles, the pastoral epistles. So you have 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. These are the pastoral epistles. And why are they called pastoral epistles? Well, they haven't always been called pastoral epistles. In fact, they didn't get that name until 1703. So it's not that long ago that they started to be called pastoral epistles. But what marks them out as pastoral epistles is the fact that uh, the, the ministry characteristics of Timothy and Titus is that of a pastoral ministry. Now, Timothy and Titus are not pastors. They are not local church pastors. They are apostolic representatives. And there's a difference. Because apostolic representatives aren't sent to minister for a long time at an individual church. They go from church to church to church taking care of uh, apostolic business. Uh, If Paul can't go, he'll send one of these uh, young men or somebody else in his behalf. And that's what Timothy and Titus do. And so when we think about the epistle to 1 Timothy, Timothy is on a mission that he's been given by the apostle Paul for the Apostle Paul. And so these are called pastoral epistles. Now, you can look at your notes and I give you an outline, a basic outline of our, um, really the entire letter there. And you can see that there's four major sections in 1 Timothy. There's the uh, introduction in chapter one, chapters two and three, there's the exhortation to Christians. In chapter uh, four, five, and just into the beginning of chapter six, there's exhortations to Timothy. And then at the end, we have the conclusion, of course. And so under heading number one, the introduction, we have the salutation in verses one through two. We have the primary problem in verses three through 11. We have the personal thankfulness of Timothy in chapter, excuse me, in verses 12 through 17. And then we have the personal charge to Timothy, or the personal thankfulness of Paul and the personal charge to Timothy, then in verses 18 through 20. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the salutation, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And in the salutation, we see three things we see the writer, the recipient, and the greeting. Uh, today, we are only looking at the writer, the writer. So let's look at look at your Bible there, verse one. It's already been read, let me read it again. Verse one, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope. So uh, here is the writer. We're given information about the writer here. And we see four things about the writer in verse one. Here's the four things. We see his name, his position, his master, and his commission, and these are in in your notes. So first let's notice his name, the name, Paul. Now who is Paul? Who is this Paul? as the writer of this epistle. Well, we know that this Paul, he had another name, didn't he? He had another name, a Hebrew name. What was that name? Saul, Saul. that's right. Uh, Just hold your finger here. We're gonna be going to the book of Acts several times here this morning. Turn back to Acts chapter seven. Acts chapter seven, verse 58. This is the first time we see this individual in the Bible and his name is Saul. At the end of verse 58, Acts chapter 7, verse 58, it says, And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So this is his Hebrew name. It was the name of the first king of Israel, uh, King Saul. And that name means to ask for, to ask for. Saul means to ask for, or the one who is asked for. So Paul, his namesake, the person he is named for, is the first king of Israel, King Saul. Now, he not only has a Hebrew name, but he also has a Latin name or Roman name, and that is Paulus. Paulus, that's where the name Paul comes from. Uh, So you're in your Bible in Acts chapter 8. Turn over to chapter 13 real quick. Chapter 13, verse 9 chapter thirteen verse nine. And it says here at the beginning of the verse, then Saul, who is also called Paul. So here's where Paul's name shifts and, and this is not a name change per se. He's not given a new name, it's a shift in name because in, in Paul's day, in the first century, Roman citizens, and we, are, we established that Paul is a Roman citizen when we looked at the book of Acts. Remember that? Paul's a Roman citizen. Roman citizens would have three names. Three names. Paul, as a Jew, probably had a fourth name. His fourth name was probably Saul. Okay, That's probably his fourth name. So a Roman citizen would have three names. Paul is one of those names. And we see this all the time today. We see people who at one time in their life go by one name and at another time in their life go by a different name. And most Americans have three names, right? Sometimes they have more than that. But they usually have three names. My father, when he was growing up, was, was, went by the name Benny. Benny. Okay. He goes off to college. He meets my mother When he's in college, he was known as Charlie. So when they move back to his hometown and he becomes the pastor of a church, she hears people calling him Benny. What in the world? Who's Benny? Well, that was the name he went by. His middle name was Bennett, and so they shortened that to Benny. Nobody in my father's family ever went by their proper name, okay? I don't know if it's a West Virginia thing or what it it might be. But he, at one time in his life, went by one name and then at another time went by a different name. That's what's happening here with the Apostle Paul. He doesn't have a new name. This has always been uh, a part of his name. Now, I want us to consider Paul's personal description of himself. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through six. Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. This is, so this is Paul's personal description of himself. We're trying to get a picture of who this writer is. We know he has different names that he's went by. Let's look at his personal description. Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. Hopefully you're there already. Verse 4. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh... If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Now pay attention to verses 5 and 6. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock or of the race of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So I just want to make a few observations about what Paul says about himself. First, he says, I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew. Do you see that? He says, I'm circumcised on the eighth day of the stock or of the race of Israel. So this tells us not only is Paul a Jew, but his parents were good Jews. They had him circumcised on the eighth day according to the law. And when he says of the race of Israel, of the stock of Israel, he's saying, I'm not a proselyte. I'm not a Gentile who converted to Judaism. I am a natural born Jew. I am a Jew by birth. And then he mentions the tribe that he's from. He's a Benjamite. Guess what? Remember who Paul's named after? King Saul? What tribe did he come from? The tribe of Benjamin. Now we see a little connection there. You find that in 1 Samuel chapter Nine, by the way. So Paul, by his own description, is a Jew. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. Then he says he's a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Now, that is an emphatic expression. He's emphasizing, you can't be any more Hebrew than me. I'm a thorough-going Hebrew. I'm as Hebrew as you can get. He gives us a fourth description when he says he's a Pharisee. A Pharisee. Now what is a Pharisee? A Pharisee was a sect within Judaism that was known for their careful keeping of the law and the traditions of their fathers. So the rabbinic teachings that would be passed down, they kept these uh, very closely. Uh, To put a modern spin on it, we might say that a Pharisee is someone who not only follows the Bible, but they follow all of the church documents and confessions as if they too were the Bible. So they elevate the documents of the church to the same level as the Bible. That's what Pharisees did, Pharisees had the Bible had a high regard for the Bible, and they had the traditions of their fathers that were handed down. And it wasn't the Bible up here and the traditions here. They were both on the same level. And uh, this is is something that Jesus stood against constantly in his ministry. And and you know, for conservative Christians, which is what I think we would call ourselves here uh, this morning, it's, it's a real temptation for us to do that same thing. It, it's very easy for conservative Christians to start judging other churches and other believers based on how we do things. Not based on the Bible, but based on what we do. And when we do this, we're becoming modern day Pharisees. The Bible is our authority. Nothing else, not the traditions of men, just the Bible and the Bible alone. We don't want to make the same mistake that the Pharisees of the first century made. So uh, Paul is a Jew. Uh, He is a Benjamite. He's a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He's a Pharisee. And we also see that he's zealous. He was zealous for the Mosaic law as demonstrated by his persecution of the church. We see this in Acts chapter 8 And nine, we're not going to turn there. And finally, the last thing we see here in Philippians is that Paul was blameless regarding the law. Now, that just simply means not that Paul kept the law perfectly. But when he violated the law, he did what the law prescribed so he could then again have fellowship with God. Let me give you an example. According to the law, if anybody came in contact with a corpse... They automatically became unclean. Now, let me tell you, if somebody in your family passes away, you're coming in contact with a corpse. But you have a family responsibility. You're going to now be unclean. Okay? Keeping the law means you do whatever the law prescribes so you can then become clean after you became unclean. So Paul is claiming here, I've done everything the law prescribed. You know, if he was involved in a funeral, after the funeral, I did the, the ceremonial cleansing of myself so I could be clean again. That's what this is talking about. So just by looking at the name of our writer, Paul, and a little bit about him, a little bit about what the scripture says about him, we can know a good bit about who this man is. And so we know his name, and now I want to consider his position. He's an apostle. Now, what is an apostle? What's an apostle? Well, this word, apostle, is a very common word in the New Testament. When you look at the verb and you look at the noun, over 213 times is how many times it appears in our New Testament. It has the basic meaning of someone who is sent. So when you think of the word apostle, it's talking about someone who is sent. But in our Bibles, it takes on a little bit more narrow meaning, a little bit more precise meaning, and and, and it is used in the sense of someone who is sent by a superior with a message, a message they have a mandate to give. Uh, This is not uncommon in the ancient world. In the ancient world, They would send naval expeditions out. And the commander of that naval expedition, guess what he was called? An apostle. An apostle. Because he has been sent on a mission, given a message, and given a mandate to give that message to whoever he's going to happen to go to. You see the same thing in the early part of our nation. When our nation sent out naval ships and they sent out naval expeditions around the world to secure our uh, trade with other countries, the, the commander of that naval expedition was a warrior and a diplomat. And he was given authority to speak on behalf of the United States of America. It's the same, same idea, same concept. What I want you to understand is that apostles never spoke for themselves. Apostles always spoke for their superior, for their master. And I just want to go over real quickly how this word is used in the Bible. So I'm just giving you some examples here. We're not going to look up any of these passages. I think he'd give you references there in your notes that you can look up. Uh, But when we find this word apostle in our New Testament, we see that it's used of the 12 original apostles that Jesus chose while he was on the earth. It's also used of Paul individually. It's used of Peter and John together. It's used of Paul and Barnabas together. It's used of Peter by himself. It's used of the original 12 plus Paul combined. It's used of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus is called an apostle. Now, why would Jesus be called an apostle? Well, if you were paying attention in our John, Gospel of John, Bible study that we had on Thursday nights, you know that Jesus was sent by the Father with a message. So he was an apostle in that sense. This word apostle is also used of false apostles. It's used of servants who are sent with a message. It's used of just messengers. And it's used of some of the brothers of Jesus Christ. And so we see numerous examples of this word being used in the New Testament. Now, Paul's an apostle. What, what's the requirements? What do you got to do to be an apostle? Can I just say I'm an apostle? Let me put on my, put on my business card. Apostle. Dan Hanchu. So That's got a ring to it, doesn't it? Apostle. Apostle. So next time, after, after we have these baptisms and you see me at lunch, just call me an apostle. Is it, does that work? Can I do that? I don't think so. Turn back to the book of Acts again. Let's look at Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Notice what these verses say in relationship to the, what is required to be an apostle. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So what is happening in this passage is that Judas is off the scene. He's committed suicide and he, he was never a believer in Jesus Christ and now he must be replaced. And so they're trying to decide, the apostles, the 11 that remain, they're trying to decide who's going to replace Judas. By the way, why is it important that they replace Judas? 12 apostles, 12 tribes of Israel. So they have to have 12. And so they're deciding who Who's going to take his place? Now look at the requirements that we see here in these verses. They say that whoever's going to replace Judas has to have been with the Lord from the beginning of his ministry, his baptism by John, to his ascension. They have to be with the Lord all that time. So that's one of the requirements. The other requirement that we see in verse 26, if you let your eyes go down to verse 26, it says, and they cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias. Now this verse is telling us that the person, in order to be an apostle, has to be chosen by God, chosen by God, and you might say, pastor, apostle, I don't see that there. Well, they're casting lots, and casting lots isn't gambling. Okay, casting lots in the Old Testament was a way to determine God's will. God approved of that in the Old Testament, that you would cast lots and and this is how you would determine the will of God. And that's what they're doing here. So when it says they cast lots and the lot fell to Matthias, it is a recognition that God has chosen Matthias for this position. Now, If you have to be with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry to his ascension, how does Paul then become an apostle? Was Paul with Jesus in his earthly ministry? No, he wasn't. So how does Paul become an apostle? Uh, The answer is found in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, where through Ananias, Paul is given a message that he has been chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ with a mandate to give a message. Let me read that verse to you. But the Lord said to him, that's Ananias, go for he, Paul, is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. So Paul is specifically chosen by Jesus Christ. And and I want you to realize that the apostleship of the twelve original apostles is a slightly different apostleship than Paul's. Their apostleship relates to the tribes of Israel. They have a future. Those men will be sitting over the tribes of Israel in the millennium. Paul is an apostle to the Gentiles. So slightly, slightly different. The the common factor is that they were all chosen personally by the Lord Jesus Christ for their ministry. And so who were the apostles? How many apostles? Really, the question I wanted to ask is how many apostles were there? And as best we can tell, 15 or 16. Okay, depending on how you understand the word apostle appearing in the Bible. And we would call those men big A apostles. Big A apostles. Um, There are little A apostles in the Bible. Let me give you an example. Turn to 2 Corinthians real quick, chapter 8. 2 Corinthians... Chapter 8, I want to show you a little A apostle. Verse 23. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 23. I hear pages have stopped, so I'm going to read. If anyone inquires about Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker concerning you. Or if our brethren are inquired about, they are messengers. That word messenger there is the word apostle. They are apostles of the church. And so little, there were little a apostles. They were apostles of the church, not apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. Are there apostles today? No. Do you realize there's pastors in Rocky Mount who claim to be apostles? They claim to be Apostles but none of them have been personally chosen by the Lord, and none of them were with the Lord in his earthly ministry. Now, here's the thing. If they were apostles, not only would their churches have to listen to them, but so would we, because they're apostles. But they're not apostles, so that they have made a mistake in claiming that title. But we see Paul, he has the position of an apostle. And this connects right into the next point, point C there I think in your notes, his master. So if all apostles have to have a superior, have to have a master, who is Paul's master? Jesus Christ. You see that next phrase in our verse here in 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy Chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That word of there in your Bible is expressing ownership, possession, connection to. And so Paul's apostleship is connected to and comes from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is Paul's master. Paul is Jesus' apostle. And a master gives their apostle a message And a mandate to give. And so Paul, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, has the responsibility to give Christ's message, not his message, to give Christ's message to those who he has been sent to. And as an apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul has all the power, authority, rights, and privileges that Jesus gives his apostles. And so Paul's master is the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, we see Paul's commission, Paul's commission. Uh, Notice what it says in our verse here. It says, Paul, an apostle of, of Jesus Christ. Now look at this last phrase, by the commandment or the command of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. So how does Paul have this apostolic commission? He received it by a command, by a commandment. And this command is referred to in at least two other places. I'm going to go to one. Turn to Titus chapter 1. It's to the right in your Bible. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Verses 1 through 3. Notice what it says here, Titus chapter one, verses one through three, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. So here Paul is referring to this command that he received to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now when did Paul get this commandment? When did he receive this commandment? We already looked at it once. Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. And Paul refers to it two other times, Acts 22 and Acts 26. Interesting. Glance down at our verse again here in 1 Timothy. It says this commandment comes by two people. God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. When this commandment is referred to, Acts chapter 9, who is the one giving that commandment? It's Jesus Christ. In Acts 22, when Paul is speaking to the Jews and the Gentile court, when, he's taken, when the Romans took him up, you remember that? He was being beaten, and then the Romans take him up the steps, and he's standing at the top of the steps to the praetorium, and he says, let me talk to him. And Claudius Lysias says, go ahead, talk to him. And Paul starts to talk. And he gives his testimony, he gives his conversion, and how he has come to be a messenger to the Gentiles. And who does he say gave gave him that commandment? God the Father gave him that commandment. Then in chapter 26, when he's talking to Agrippa, he goes back and says, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, gave me that commandment. Now, what I want you to see is that the book of Acts, how it records this commandment, comes from God the Father and God the Son, just like it does here. And we see where that comes from. So we have God the Father and God the Son both commissioning Paul in this role of apostle of Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice what it says here about God the Father. Again, it says, by the commandment of God our Savior. Now stop. God our Savior? thought Jesus was our Savior. Isn't that right? Isn't Jesus Christ our Savior? Why does it say God our Savior? And here it's referring to God the Father. How is God the Father our Savior? Well, the Bible refers to all three persons of the Trinity being involved in your salvation. Do you realize that? And so in that sense, God the Father is your Savior, God the Son's your Savior, and God the Holy Spirit is your Savior. Think of it this way the father plans salvation god the father is our savior god the son provides salvation jesus christ is your savior god the holy spirit performs the salvation by regenerating you god the holy spirit is your savior and so uh, as paul writes to timothy he says I got my commission from God the Father. And then he says, I also got this commission from God the Son. And he refers to God the Son with this title, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. Let me talk about that title a little bit. This title for Jesus never appears in the Gospels. It's never in the Gospels. It only appears after Acts chapter 11, once the Gentiles are incorporated into the church. And notice, this title has three parts, right? You don't have to be a rocket scientist to see those three parts. Lord, Jesus, Christ. All three parts are significant. We say it, it just kind of rolls off our tongue, doesn't it? say, Lord Jesus Christ, my Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ. It just kind of rolls off. But each part of that title is significant. Lord. What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? It means he's God. When a Jew would read this and they would see the word Kyrios, they would connect that with being Yahweh, the one true and living God. The Gentiles would connect that with the supreme being of the universe. Again, God. So when we say Jesus is Lord, we're saying Jesus is God. And then we have the second part of this title, Jesus. That's his personal name. Jesus is a person. He's God and he's man. The God man, 100% God and 100% man. We don't understand all that, how that can be, but it's true. And finally, he's Christ. He's Messiah. And that speaks of his relationship to Israel and how he has that relationship to Israel. He's the Messiah of Israel. He's the anointed one to Israel, to the Jews. And who anointed him? God the Father anointed him for that purpose. And so Jesus Christ... Is God, he is man, and he is the Messiah of Israel. And I want you to notice, go, let me back up here a little bit, and it says that Jesus is our hope. Our hope. Now, what is hope? What does hope mean? I hope I win the lottery. Is that what it means? Don't play the lottery. It's just a rip-off, okay? But that, you know, people go in, they stand in line in convenience stores and just to get their lottery ticket because they hope they win. They hope they that's not that's not hope. Hope is a certain expectation of a fulfillment, a certain expectation of a fulfillment. It's a confident expectation that something will come to pass because it's a sure thing. That's what the biblical word hope means and jesus christ is our hope our hope paul doesn't say my hope he says our hope because all that we look forward to is found in jesus christ everything our salvation who we are as Christians, what we will become as Christians, what is in store for us in the future. It's all based upon who Christ is and what he has done. And so he is our hope. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the present reality, Jesus is your hope. It is a, that hope is a present reality. Possession. Doesn't matter how you feel, doesn't matter what you do. He is your hope. Now, let me close this morning by asking you a couple questions. Why did Paul stress his apostleship? The fact that he was commissioned as an apostle by God the Father and God the Son. Why did he stress that to Timothy? Timothy obviously knew that already. Why does he stress it to Timothy? I'll give you three seconds to think about an answer. One, two, three. I think that Paul stresses this to Timothy, not for Timothy's sake personally. But because of the fact that Timothy has gone into a situation where people will undoubtedly say, Timothy, we don't have to listen to you. Timothy, why do you say that? Why are you doing that? Who are you to tell us what to do? And Timothy can say, I'm here under the authority of the Apostle Paul. That's why I'm here. And remember, people died because of Apostles. Okay, There is great authority in the Apostleship that Paul has. And Timothy can say, I'm not here under my own authority. I'm here under the authority of the Apostle Paul. Now let me tell you about today. Do we... Ever need to refer to somebody as our authority? Do we ever need to point to another man, another person, as our authority? No, we don't. We don't. We have the Bible. The Bible is our authority. In fact, when we refer to somebody else, when we say, "Well, I believe this because this person," told me. Are you believing the Bible? Are you believing what that person said? You're believing what that person said. Our authority, our only authority, is the Bible. Timothy had the Old Testament, but he didn't have the New Testament. We have both the Old and New Testament. It's a good rule of thumb. When you're trying to figure out who's my authority... Why do I believe what I believe? The question is, can I prove it from the Bible? Can I prove it from the clear teaching of God's word? Because that's our authority. I also want us to consider the fact that God is our savior and Jesus Christ is our hope. And so we need to ask the question, is God really my savior? Is God really my rescuer? You know, everybody's in need of rescue. You realize that? Everybody needs rescued. Uh, unsaved people need rescued from their sins. And there's only one that can do that, and that is God. You know why that is? Do you know why God needs to be your rescuer? Because when you sin, you're sinning against God. You're offending God. And he's the one who has to rescue. You cannot rescue yourself. You cannot rescue yourself. God has to rescue you. And God has made a plan for your rescue. He's provided for it. God provided his son to come die on the cross for your sins. So that you can be rescued from your sins. And have a right relationship with God. So today, if you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your savior, God is providing the rescue for you. You just have to accept it. When I was a whitewater rafting guide, I know it probably doesn't look like I can even swim now, but I used to be a whitewater rafting guide. And in our boats, we would have this thing called a throw bag. And that throw bag had a little floaty thing on the end of it, and it had about 60 feet worth of line in it. And if somebody would fall out of a raft, they get separated from a raft in the middle of a rapid. You could take that throw bag and you'd right at them. And that line would just, you held on to the end of it. But the line would just go right out to the person. And the person could grab onto it and you would pull them back into the raft. They would be rescued. Can you believe it? People would fall out in the middle of a rapid. You'd throw that line right across their head. And they wouldn't grab it. They wouldn't grab it. That's their rescue. That's their salvation. They wouldn't grab it. Don't be like that today. You need rescued. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you need rescued. God is offering you a rescue. But you have to accept it. I also want to mention the fact that sometimes we as Christians who have been rescued live like people who need rescued. Sometimes. As a believer, we live like unbelievers. And and, and a wayward life of a believer is sometimes clearly seen in their outward testimony, how they live their life, but at other times it's on the inside, it's in their heart. It's not so easily observed. They have a heart of bitterness, discontentment, pride, hate, lust, and it's inside them. And, And if you're living with those sins, what do you try to do? Try to hide them. You hide them and you hang on to them and you bury them in your heart and you try to live with them. Well, that's living like a person who needs rescued, but you've already been rescued. What you need to do is not to hide those sins, not to carry those sins with you, not to hang on to those sins, but to confess them to God. Don't live in sin, confess them to God. And if you need to seek forgiveness from others, do so. And let me end with this. At the end of the day, Jesus Christ is our hope, He's our future. What are you hoping for today? Lunch? <laughs> a nap? Vacation? As Christians, our perspective should be a future, eternal perspective. And in that view, we see Jesus Christ, who is the author, can you say the rest of it, and finisher of our faith. Him and him alone. Let's, let me close in a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for this time that we've had together. Now, we ask that you would be with the rest of our service as we sing And as we have these baptisms, Lord, we want to honor you in all of this. We ask your blessing on this time. We pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.